Lord God, as we meet together to study your word, help us to test everything. Everything which purports to come from you, so that we may hold fast to what is good and abstain from all forms of evil. Amen. It's the last week in our sermon series on the first letter to the Thessalonians. And I'm going to begin by explaining part of this passage by obeying it. We are commanded to respect our leaders and to esteem them highly. So I thought I'd start with that. I'm going to say something in esteem of Ben. When Ben gave me this passage to preach from, he said, go into it very deeply. Really consider it in detail. That's okay, you can be deep and theological about all this passage. And I have two ways of thinking of that. Either I can conclude that Ben has a very dry sense of humour, <laughs> or that he hasn't read this book before. And I'm going to go with the first one. Because... Paul writes this last part of his letter to the Thessalonians as if he's running out of paper and he's desperate to get down as much Christian teaching as possible before he has no more parchment to write it on. It's packed with instructions and injunctions and deep themes. If I try to go into this passage deeply, the 11 o'clock service will probably start sometime tomorrow morning. <laughs> So where are we here? We, we've, at the end of a letter, we've had five sermons over the last five weeks on this letter. We began with the gospel call, then our presentation of the gospel, then how we live with opposition, then how we deal with sin, and then the great theme of how we face death and how we face grief. And now Paul closes the letter with a list of instructions about how we should live. We are told about leadership, how we should regard our leaders, how we should live in community. We are then given a trio of impossible commands, and I'll come to those later. We're given instructions on how to know the will of God, and then a final summary of our hope in Christ. All of that in 16 verses. To start with leadership. We're called to view our leaders with respect, esteem and love. And Paul gave that command to all Christians, to all churches. Have there been bad and corrupt leaders in the church? Yes, of course. So sometimes our love might need to be a very critical form of love. But the default setting of the Christian towards leadership is one of respect. And not just a formal respect for office. We aren't told to respect the person because they have that role only. We're told to respect them in love we're told to relate to our leaders on a personal level. 
that loving esteem is what we should want to have and try to have for anyone who takes on the responsibility of Christian leadership. And we are particularly to respect our leaders, and this is difficult, when they admonish us. It is part of a church leader's responsibility to tell us when we are wrong. When we are blind, when we are disobedient, when we are lazy. And when they do that, and it's their job to do that, we are to respect them. We're not to resent being told that we're wrong. How easy is it to do that? We're to respond with loving esteem, to examine ourselves, and to take seriously what we are told. And that can't work without the highest standards of integrity, humility, and moral courage in our leaders and in us. And Paul knows we can't live up to that. He knows that we won't. He is a Christian leader, and he asked later on in this passage for the believers to pray for him. We pray for our leaders because they're human, because they're like us, because they're fallible. But we are to respect and esteem them anyway. Our relationships with one another are also of vital importance. All conflict, all animosity, all rivalry, gossip, bitterness is out of place in this building and in this community. We are to be at peace. And again, that is not because we are good people. If you look at the passage, you will see how clearly Paul knows that we are not good people. His commands are specifically directed to people who fail. Idlers. Kara, in her sermon a couple of weeks ago, went through the Greek meaning of that term and how it's used. Basically, it means ill-disciplined skivers, people who doss off. One of my teachers at school said to me at the end of many years teaching me, David, you're the best concealed skiver and dosser in the school. (laughs) Don't think he was wrong. But that's the sort of thing that existed in Paul's community and, yes, in our community. Faint-hearted. People who don't have the commitment and gumption and strength of character to try to live the Christian life without encouragement. The weak. People who can't cope without the help of others. And that's all of us. Some of us will see ourselves in that all the time. All of us are included in that in our weakest moments. And that the commands in this letter are to those people. 
those people who aren't good enough. And what are we told? None of you. Those are Paul's words. None of you are to repay evil for evil. The worst and weakest Christian amongst us is called to obey the very highest standards of love and forgiveness. How do we make sense of that? Paul's just told us that we're lazy, uncommitted, timid, inept believers. And he's right. We need every support and indulgence to live a Christian life. And he's right. And then he speaks to us as if we're capable of the utmost selflessness and restraint. To put it mildly, it isn't very practical. These aren't very sensible instructions to build a realistically functional community. But that isn't what Paul is doing. That's not what the church is for. Paul could have given sensible rules, laid out obligations and rights within sensible limits for fallible people to more or less rub along together. He didn't even try to do that. On Ben's recommendation, I recently listened to uh, theologian Stanley Hauerwas, who was speaking about the church. And he said this, Evangelicals believe that they have a relationship with God that they then go to church to have expressed. It never occurs to them that you only know the God worth worshipping mediated by the church. You do not know the God it is who is worthy of worship separated from a separated people. Because I'm not a theologian, I don't think I can be quite as dogmatic as that. I won't say that God can't reveal himself to Christians apart from the Christian community. But I will say that if he does, that's plan B. That's not the normal way that we know God. The normal way that God has appointed for us to know him, to grow in knowledge of him, is by being his people together. He's given us many tools. The Bible, the tradition of Christian worship, the reflections of theologians, the experiences of mystics. All of those are best understood and best interpreted in community. And Alan's sermon that opened this series made a, a similar point. He dealt with Paul's writing to the Thessalonians and saying that they had become imitators of us, that is, imitators of Paul and his companions. And then those Christians who had imitated Paul became examples to all believers. And the purpose of that example and that imitation was for the church to become more like Jesus. We learn to be like Jesus when trying to follow him. 
and we are supposed to show one another how to live a Christian life. Because it is by learning from one another that we learn about God. Very shortly after Ben joined us as vicar, he preached a sermon on forgiveness. And it's a sermon that I remember. It was one of his best, in my view. It was powerful, it was personal, it was articulate, it was thought-provoking. But good as that sermon was, any one person here today could teach me more about forgiveness than I learnt in that sermon. Just by forgiving someone. If you can show me, and you can show me, what it looks like when someone who loves Jesus is hurt and then conquers their anger and their bitterness with love, you will have shown me more in that moment about forgiveness than I could learn in a year of sermons. And that's your job, and it's my job, to live a Jesus-like life so that the church can see what is possible when Christians try to obey. That's why Paul didn't give us sensible, practical advice on how to get on. Because we already know what sensible, practical people can do. What we need to learn from one another is what weak people can do when they let Jesus reign. And now we're ready to do the impossible. In fact, we're ready to do three impossible things. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And hardest of all, give thanks in all circumstances. Paul knew as well as we do better how hard life can be. He knew grief and worry and pain and uncertainty about the future and frustration and regret. And yet he commands joy, prayer and thankfulness all the time, no matter what. He commands us, in fact, to live in God's presence. Nothing else could allow us to do what he asks. Nothing on earth can make us rejoice always. Nothing on earth is meant to satisfy us that much. Only God, who made us and knows us and loves us, can give us ultimate joy. That's why Paul didn't give us practical rules. It's because he's calling us to God's standards, calling us to holiness, because our job is to show one another what that looks like. We don't do it alone, not even as a community. 
And Paul mentions, or or rather assumes, two sources of knowledge of God that we already have. The Spirit and the words of the prophets. What does he say? Don't quench the Spirit. That is, he assumes that God's Spirit is working already. And what we need to do is avoid smothering the Spirit's work. We should assume that. We should assume that God is active. We should come here expecting God to engage with us, expecting to learn from him. Our cynicism, our disobedience, our selfishness can stop us hearing God, but cannot stop God speaking. We should let God speak clearly. And we should not despise prophecy. What is prophecy? Well, we're not given a definition. But I'm going to suggest that anyone trying to communicate God's word is doing a prophet's task. When the Bible is read, that is prophecy. When we try to explain it, when we try to understand it, when we ask each other questions and try to answer them, we are doing prophet's work. When we think we are being guided by God or by our conscience and we try to share that guidance, however unsure or tentative or confused we might be, if God can use that word to communicate, then we are under orders not to despise it. But we don't accept everything that purports to come from God uncritically. We must test everything. Every time we read or hear or think words which might come from God, we must weigh them carefully. It is very easy to pretend that we have God's approval for what we were planning to do anyway. And the primary test is a moral one. Hold fast to what you know to be good and avoid every hint of evil. God is holy. God may not be practical. He may not, to our eyes, even be sensible. But he is good always good and it's by being intent on goodness that we learn to listen to God and distinguish his true voice from mishearings and misinterpretations and the end of that what we're aiming for is that God would sanctify us entirely every part of our being would be made right that's what Paul means when he says Jesus sanctifies our spirit and soul and body. It means he restores all of us. Every evil, every weakness, every sin is overcome. So why do church? Why have a specifically Christian community at all? It's to help us get closer to that restoration. 
to help us hear and live the gospel. God is healing the world and you can be part of that. God is triumphant over all that is wrong. You can share that victory. The theme of this sermon series was faithful hope. God's sanctification is what we hope for. But where is the faith? We talk of being saved by faith. And we often think of that in terms of our faith in God, our trust in him. And that's true. That's how we should think of faith when we distinguish it from works. We certainly are not saved by trying to earn God's favour. But I can't help noticing that in this passage, the word faithful is used once and once only. And it's not used of us. It's used of God. God is faithful. What saves us is not screwing up our minds and trying to make an effort to believe hard enough. It's not the case that by increasing our sense of conviction and convincing ourselves that we really, really, really believe that we are saved. We can't work marvels by doing that. What saves us is God's faithfulness. Not us trying to manufacture an unshakable belief. That's mere sand. It's God's commitment to his purpose and his promise and to us, his people, that is rock. That's the foundation of our hope. And that's the only reason why Paul can command the impossible of us as God's church. Because the one who calls you is faithful and he will do this. God has not changed. He's no less committed to his people now and then as then. His spirit is no less present. His words are no less powerful. And we are the same church. God's project. God's work in progress. The community from which he is making something magnificent. The letter we've studied was written to remind us of that. To help us live as the thing that we are. God's faithful hope. Amen.